anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and, the holy, and with the holy angels. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for um, your word that speaks so much truth to us. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless Bryce as he comes up here, that you would anoint his words, that you would open up our ears to listen, our hearts to receive what it is that you've given him to speak today. Um, And so, Lord, we bless your name, we love you, and we invite you into this place and into our hearts. Amen. Guys, I, I am so privileged to be up here. And so Gavin and Kim, thank you for allowing me to speak here. Oh, I love my Omega team over there. Amazing. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to jump right into it. Because as uh, Gavin and Kim gave me this, this passage of Mark 8, as I, when I first read it, I, I looked at it and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much that I could preach from. There's, we can see like, there's the, the multiplication of, of, the four, of the bread with the 4,000. There's Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. We see that, that Jesus even rebukes his own disciples multiple times in this passage. And I, I was looking at this, and I, I just saw that this was, it was such a big chapter. And as I was doing my research on this chapter, I... I could see that from the later chapters that our other grads were preaching on, we could see that the atmosphere of the book of Mark is starting to build up into this chapter. And we, we're starting to reach this pivotal moment where in Jesus' ministry as he is getting ready to, to just do a complete change. In fact, I was reading N.T. Wright's commentary. And if you guys don't know who N.T. Wright is, He's just a famous theologian, uh, an amazing author. And one of the things that he says when it comes to the book of Mark, or Mark 8, is we'd better think hard about this because this passage is really the center point, the turning point of Mark's gospel. And when I read that, my heart sank because, like, oh, my gosh, I now have to preach this. Um, but also it started to make me excited because I started to look at what was actually this pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry. So as I dissect it, we see that we've now reached a second feeding of now not 5,000, but only 4,000 people where Jesus multiplies some loaves and bread. And then we see Jesus rebuke the Pharisees and then we get into this interesting point where only a few hours after the feeding, the disciples lose faith because they only have one loaf of bread. And now all of this is big, and all of this, you could write a sermon on each of these passages. But what actually started to take, uh, to really grapple with my heart was actually the story of the blind man. Because so many times have I, I've read the story of the blind man and I've, I've looked at it and I see that Jesus first one spits on the guy's eyes, which I would never recommend someone doing that nowadays. And then two, we see that it takes him two attempts to heal this blind man. 
And when, I, when you look at that, it seems ludicrous to think that Jesus, it took him two times to heal it. And as, as I've heard other people talk about this passage, they've tried to say that, oh, this is supposed to, to resemble how we're supposed to be persistent in our prayers. That we're supposed, like, don't be discouraged if someone isn't healed instantly the first time you pray. But just realize, Jesus, it took him two times. And now, I do agree that we are supposed to be persistent in our prayers. And I'm not, I would never speak against that. Because we see in Luke 11, 5 to 8, that Jesus is clear about the neighbor knocking on the door until it's answered to him. So we know that persistence in prayer is important. But I don't think that's what is being said here. Because when we look at the blind man and we look at, at Jesus, I don't believe that this blind man's ailment was bigger than the power of Jesus. And as I look at this, we, we have to remember that Jesus is the one that beforehand was healing people with one sentence saying, get up and walk. This is the same Jesus that's casted out demons with one phrase, and this is the same Jesus that multiplied the loaves and bread by blessing them. So I don't think it's, it, we're, what Jesus is trying to do is say that he didn't have the power to heal this man in one go. In fact, as I started to read, there's a, a lot of correlation between this blind man and the disciples' hearts. Where the disciples, they, they were with Jesus this whole time and they were able to be healed of this of this first instance where they can now see that the Christ is with them and that he is moving and working and teaching amongst them. And we see that the disciples are, are starting to, to listen to Jesus. However, they're still blind. They only see Jesus to be the blurry figure that the blind man saw in, the second he, or in his first healing. And as I was looking at this, I, I was looking at how, why the disciples would be blind like this. And when I was looking at that, I was seeing that uh, the disciples, what they were looking out for Jesus was they were looking for him to be their, their release, their relinquishing of their oppression of the Roman Empire. You see, they had their own expectations, their own desires, and they allowed their current circumstances to shape the way that they saw the identity of Jesus. And I, as I was looking at this, I was starting to see that uh, that's what Jesus was really starting to, to go after in this chapter, was Jesus was seeing the way that they saw him and he was wanting to speak against that. We see this in an example in verse 32 where Jesus says that I'm to die on the cross. And then we see Peter being the leader, the rock that he is, say like, Jesus, you don't know what you're saying. Now, I was never one of those students that liked to tell my teacher that they were wrong. So I don't quite empathize with Peter here. But I, I definitely don't, or I would be horrified to think that a teacher in front of all my friends would then rebuke me back. Um, but we see Jesus doing that. And we see that not just does Jesus rebuke him, 
but he starts speaking to the heart of Peter's issues. And we see that he does this in verses 34 to 38, when he's speaking to all the disciples, saying that to follow me, you have to pick up your cross. To follow me, you too are going to have to go through the suffering that the suffering Messiah, the suffering king, is going to be going through. And then, not just that, but he's saying, and you can't be ashamed of it either. And it's starting, and as we look at this, we're starting to see what Jesus is saying when he's telling them to pick up their cross, is he's wanting them to lay down their expectations that they've had. They want, he's wanting them to stop looking at him through the lens of their current circumstances. And he's wanting them to, to drop their self-interested identities that they've put on God so that they can also put down their subjective views that, we, that they've used to justify their own agendas in the name of Christ. And, and they, Jesus wants them to do that so they can, so they can pursue his calling holy. And as I was looking at this, I, I have to admit that I, too, felt so convicted as I was looking at this. I have felt convicted as I was looking at the times where I have used Jesus and I've looked at him with the wrong identity that he had. And I, I look at this and I, and I wonder if the disciples, if they saw Jesus for there or for his true self, I believe that the way we identify with Jesus shapes our theology. Sorry, I got a little jumbled there. But uh, again, I believe that the way we see Jesus shapes our theology. The way that we, we see the nature of God will change the way that we look at the world around us. And I look at this when I see the disciples that when they looked at Jesus as a healer, if they knew Jesus' identity, they would see him more than just a healer. They, and if they did that, they wouldn't have been surprised when he said, your sins are forgiven. I don't think they would have been surprised if they saw him more than just a king. And if they, if they weren't surprised, they wouldn't have been jockeying for the position of who sat on the right or left hand of Jesus. If they saw Jesus clearly for his identity, I don't think they would have lost faith when Jesus died on the cross. You see, the, the way that we see Jesus and the expectations and the circumstances and everything that we put to, to try to identify Jesus as, that will shape the way that we see him. And that will shape the way that we go about and walk in our lives. I can relate to this because as a kid, I think back to when I was in camp. I was about eight years old, and I remember being the very observant kid that I was, that when a, a leader told me that, you were go, that, I have a, that God has put a call on your life to be a leader, I told him no, because I believed that God only called musicians. Now that kind of came because I saw all these youth pastors who would take a guitar out around the fire and sing Kumbaya. But I, that was my perception on who Jesus called because my perception of Jesus was that he, he only wanted those who were musical. 
And as I was looking at that, I, I can see how God's identity has been shaping me now at, at Bible College as well. Because as I, as I think of my personal theology and how my personal theologies have changed, I see that when I look at Jesus not just as my healer or uh, as the king of the world, but I see him also as the suffering king who died for me. I now am ready to also take on that, take on my own cross and follow him. And this has been shaping my theology on suffering. I can, and this has been shaping as I've been looking at going to the place where only one out of 30 global workers are willing to go to. This being the restricted access nations. I, and as I look at this, I see that God has been freeing me to see the fields that are ripe for the harvest, that, I've, that because I can see Jesus for who he is, I can follow him into these places of the great unknown. And, it's, and yes, there's fear in, that's there, but I know that when I know Jesus' identity, that I can follow him in spite of my fear. And as, as I think about this now, and I know not all of us are going to be called to the restricted access nations, but I also think that this fear or this discomfort that sometimes inhibit us from following the, the call that God has put on our life also applies to us when we, when we might feel the call to pastoring a small town church. I think that the fear and discomfort that, that prohibits us from following the call that God has given us could also come when we don't get the position that we were hoping for. And I think that also we, if we were to see Jesus for who he is, we would be able to work past the discomfort and, and fear when it comes to revitalizing an unhealthy church or to be planting a new church. You see, what I have found is knowing the one who sends us gives us the ability to follow through the fear and discomfort. And why do I believe this? Because I believe that God's identity gives us confidence. Uh, As I was looking into God's identity as my confidence, I I came across Proverbs 3.26, which tells us that for for the Lord will be your confidence, and he will keep your foot from being caught. You see, when, when I read that, I see that when we put our hopes and our desires and our vision on who God truly is, we can have confidence that he's going to be guiding us into the places of discomfort, in the places where we are afraid, into the places where we, we might see that there is lack. And I, I look at this, and I see just how much identity gives, or how much identity is important. Because as I think about the identity that people have given me as I'm here, uh, I often hear people say, you're the guy who finished the Herm paper in one night. And they, they come to me for confidence because the, I, if I can do it, then they can do it. Sorry, Mark. Um, they, they come to me because they, I'm the guy who drinks lots of coffee. So they have confidence that they can come to me to get good coffee. 
<laughs> so when we look at that, eh, I don't think this, this doesn't apply to the way we look at God either. The identities that we put on God is, eh, is the way that we are able to come to him confidently. So when we're in the midst of our storms, we're able to see that God is the one that brings peace. And it's through this where if our confidence is built through the identity of God, I believe that his identity, that confidence will then fix our perspective. Um, We see that the disciples on the boat were suffering from this false perspective in verse 16, where they had one loaf of bread. And it's actually interesting because I was reading the life of the Spirit, uh, a commentary, what the, the author writes is the disciples' response in verse 16 that we have no bread is an ironic confession of the blindness of the dimension of Jesus' identity. And I, I look at that and I, we, I, I feel like I'm kind of coming late to this, this conversation because I see people who preached like Jess Sabatino who talked about even in what we see as scarcity, there is abundance in Christ. As when Jace last night was talking about how we can have that personal revelation of who Jesus is, I, I look at that and, I, and I, I'm contemplating on how it, when we have God's identity and when we, when we see who God's identity is, it should contrast our circumstances that we're in. So when we're in the midst of our lack, when we're in the midst of our suffering and our storms, God's identity of being our peace and our provider and our hope should give us confidence in those moments. And as we look to scripture, and this is just one of the reasons my, my team has heard me say it a lot, but one of the reasons we should do our devotions and I believe one of the reasons is because we can see the identity of God through the passages. That as you look through the Old Testament, we can see that God is the provider, Jehovah Jireh. We can see that that God is the one that calms the storms. We can see that he is the peace and the hope, and he is the good shepherd who's guiding us through the times of discomfort and of fear. And as I look at this, I don't think it's just scripture, but as well as I was reading this, I actually got really convicted because I would be up in the room with the guys and I would, we'd be coming back from a chapel and I'd be like, oh, we played Waymaker again. Like, why Waymaker? We've, we've played it at least 10 or 15 times this, this year. And as I was looking at this and I was, I was contemplating on what the words of Waymaker was, you see that the song is actually identifying God's identity. Where it says, our way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That we are proclaiming the identity of God in spite of the circumstances that we're in. That we're proclaiming the identity of God even when we're feeling overwhelmed or when we are, are brokenhearted or wherever we are at at this point in the semester. We are proclaiming that God's identity is that he is a way maker when we don't see the way. That he is the promise keeper when our hearts are broken and we, we don't feel like we're fulfilled, but we know that God is our fulfillment. We're, 
he's the light in the darkness when we don't know what the next step after grad is. And it's when we look at the identity of God, it becomes the, our new perspective. And if you don't believe me, look at Mark Hawks. Mark Hawks's Facebook page, as he's at least posted at least 20 of those little memes of it. I got one up here. <laughs> However, I do know that there are times that when I, even though I'm reading scripture and even though that I'm, I'm praising to Waymaker, that my heart feels hard to the identity of God. And I, I know that there are times when, even though I'm proclaiming that God is the way maker in the moments of where I'm feeling fear after graduation, I, I just, I'm not feeling that, that counsel that I, I'm expecting to get. And that's where I want to start ending off, is that when we look at verses 17 to 18, I, I'm surprised that Jesus doesn't revert the disciples to Old Testament prophecies. He doesn't try to tell them this is who God is through the Old Testament. He doesn't get them to sing one of David's psalms. But no, we actually see that Jesus' response to their lack of faith was he questioned them. In his questions, it was, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets were left? When I fed the 4,000, how many were left? And I think Jace last night really brought a good point that it's these questions that start revealing the inside of our hearts. And I, I, as I look at this, I feel like this is really just teaching on the fact that God has proven his identity to us countless times before. And I, as I look at this, I see that God has the same questions for me. Was I not the one who accepted you when you were the prodigal son? Was I not the one who changed, and gave, or who changed you and gave you a new identity in me? When I called you to North Africa, did I not pave a way for you to get there? When you, when you called out to me and your brokenheartedness... Was I not the one that met you? And these are just some of the questions that I've had to to look back to and see that God has answered in my life. But the thing is, in this room, I know that there's other people who God has also done the same thing for them. That God's identity has been proven to other people in this room countless and countless times again. And it's in those moments where we're starting to say, God, I don't know who you are, or I don't know how to, to follow you in this moment, that we can see that all we have to do is look back to his past faithfulness because he has already proven his identity. So to end off, verse 29, Jesus says, so whom do you say that I am? And I just want us to reflect on that question as, as we go through our day. Whom do you say that I am in the face of temptation? Whom do you say that I am to the uncertainty of your future? Whom do you say that I am through your broken heart or when you're feeling overwhelmed or whatever your personal struggle is? 
when you look at the identity of Jesus, I believe that it will give you confidence in those moments. And I believe that it will change your perspective from a place of fear into knowing that God is making a way. Let me pray for you guys. God, I thank you so much that it is in your identity that we get to find our confidence. That is in your identity when we are afraid that we know that you are making a way, that you are there and that you are with us. So God, I pray that as we are are looking back to the past faithfulness that you have proved in our own life, when we're looking to scripture and as we're singing those songs, God, I pray that that we will look at that as your identity and that we'll grow in confidence as we go into the places where we were afraid to go before. So God, I just pray over this campus that we'll just continually get to learn and know more about who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.